this service was born at the auction we had last year to raise funds for First Parish. I put a sermon for the auction, and since that moment on, I have a lot of fun, joy, and trepidation. <laughs> I didn't know who the persons were going to buy the, the sermon, if any. And then, when I knew that Mori and Cushing had bought the sermon, I was very curious to see what the subject was going to be. Could be anything, but Grace visited me, and they decided I should preach on Buddhism, which I, I love. So um, in preparing this sermon, there was a lot of excitement also, revisiting my old materials and books, but trepidation, knowing that the subject is so important, is so profound, is so extensive, that there is no way one can do honor or, may, or preparing in just one sermon. So please open your hearts and receive my words with the love and care that they were prepared, but realizing that this is just a little bit a sampling of what this beautiful religion is. History tells us that Siddhartha Gautama, known as the Buddha or the Enlightened One, was born in the foothills of the Himalayan mountains in what is now Nepal. That happens in 50, 1563 before the Common Era. His, father's, his father was a king, or in those times there were many kings or feudal lords, and he was very rich, raising his son in the lap of luxury. From all accounts, Siddhartha was very, extremely handsome. Every account said that his countenance and his face and his demeanor was very, very <laughs> handsome. He married his neighbor princess, Yasodhara, at the age of 16, and then they had a son they named Rahula. As with all great heroes and masters in humanity, including Jesus, as we know, his birth became the stuff of legends. One of them says that his mother conceived him in a dream where she was visited by a white elephant which touched her left side with a white lotus held in his trunk. He came to this world from his mother's right side, sort of like Eva came from Adam, uh, while, while she stood in a garden. At that moment, the world was flooded with light. The blind saw, the deaf heard, and the lame and maimed ran toward the infant. Another tale in the life of Buddha is that of the four passing sights. This is, this is fairly common. Soon after his birth, fortune tellers were consulted on the future of Siddhartha. All agreed about the specialness of this child. And they said that depending on his upbringing, he could become the unifier of India and a great king and conqueror, but that for this he had to be of the world. Or he could become a great redeemer. When wanting the first option for his son, the king lavished all kinds of pleasures and riches on him. Three palaces and 40,000 dancing girls, just to name few. The king also isolated Siddhartha from the outside world to make sure that he did not become in contact 
with the painful realities of the less fortunate. Anytime the prince went out, runners in front of him cleared all the roads of anything that could, could upset him. One day, however, probably the runners didn't fulfill their job as they should, and then Siddhartha saw an old decrepit man who was trembling, toothless, and bent. Even with double precautions from their own, established by the king, on three more outings, Siddhartha learned about poverty, sickness, and death. After seeing these parts of, of life, he lost interest in worldly things and decided to become a true seeker. And at the age of 29, with great sadness, he left his wife and son in search of enlightenment. He vowed to find the causes and cures of humanity's pain and suffering. His search had three important phases. One, the life of the lonely forest dweller. As such, he sought two of the most advanced Hindu masters to learn the wisdom of their Hindu tradition and mainly the philosophy and raga, raga yoga. Second phase, having learned all he could, could from these teachers, he joined the ascetics. He took to extreme their practices of subduing the body, and in one of his rigorous fasts, he ate only six grains of rice a day. Buddha says that this extreme um, ascetic life, one time he wanted to touch his skin and he touched his um, spine. At that time, he, not at that time, but during this period, he almost died of starvation. Somebody gave him a, a bowl of rice and tried to revive him, and then he learned that going to these extremes was not good for the soul or for his practice. That's when he started devising the middle way, not being too rigorous on one side or not too leisurely on the other. The third phase of his quest was aided by rigorous thought and mystic concentration through Raja Yoga. It was during this stage that he sat in meditation under the Bodhi tree, vowing not to rise until he became enlightened. From the first night of his sitting, all kinds of temptations befall him. However, no matter how fierce they were, he persevered with great concentration. He was rewarded with spectacular bursts of bliss, and after sitting for 49 days, he returned to the world. In his first sermon, which was the, to become one of the most celebrated in the history of religion, he proclaimed the four noble truths. The first noble truth is that life is dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A, a word usually translated as suffering. However, in the Pali language used by the Buddha, dukkha means a wheel whose axles are off-center, or like a bone out of his socket. Applying this notion to our lives, when in dukkha, we will be out of kilter, lacking balance, doomed to suffer. The second noble truth is that the reason for suffering is tanya, T-A-N-H-A, -A, a word usually translated as thirst or desire. 
However, in the Buddha's term, tanya means specifically a craving for individual fulfillment. Thus, as long as we strive for our own interest, we will be dislocated from the universe, from the unity with all, and therefore we will suffer. The third noble truth is that the craving for selfish individuality must be overcome if one is to find peace. And the fourth noble truth is that the means for overcoming that craving is the Eightfold Path. The following is just a quick overview of the eight steps in this path. First step is right views. The path to enlightenment begins by using one's reason to grasp and understand the four noble truths. The second step is right intent, meaning knowing what is our heart's desire and to persistently and passionately work to attain it. The third step is right speech. Be attentive to what one reveals of oneself through language. Are we telling the truth? Are we charitable in our speech? To be avoided are false witness, gossip, slander, and abusive language. The fourth step is right conduct, discerning the real motives of our actions. In giving, how much is generosity and how much is looking for approval? The following are the precepts given by Buddha to help attain the right conduct. Do not kill, steal, lie, be unchaste, or drink intoxicants. The fifth step is right livelihood. Buddha condemned certain professions that were incompatible with the path while promoting those that enhanced life. He considered incompatible professions such as those of poison peddlers at the time, slave traders, prostitutes, arms makers, and the like. The sixth step is right effort. It is obvious from his teachings and examples that Buddha placed a tremendous value on persistence and the will. Reaching any goal, let alone enlightenment, requires a steady effort and discipline. I was disappointed um, in my early times of meditation uh, when the, the teacher of the class told us that the meditation she was going to teach us, that the counting from one to 10, uh, trying not to be distracted, and if at any moment you get distracted in the counting, one, two, three, then go back to, to one. And, he sa and she said that in the East, where this originated, they count to 10, but because our minds here in the West are so fickle and distractible, uh, that we are going to count only until four. So sort of just, and that's how we stage here, one to four, not one to 10. The seventh step is right mindfulness. Scholars of religion agree that no great teacher other than Buddha had put more emphasis in the influence of mind over life. The beginning of the Dhammapada, the sacred book that contains Buddha's teachings, in fact, there is a copy right there, you can see it later. This uh, book uh, starts with, mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, 
created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a corrupt mind, suffering follows as the wheel follows the hoof of an ox pulling a cart. Mind is the forerunner of all actions. All deeds are led by mind, created by mind. If one speaks or acts with a serene mind, happiness follows as surely as one's shadow. The secret of happiness, then, consists in speaking and acting with a serene mind. But what is a serene mind and how can we attain it? A serene mind is the mind attuned to the reality of life. It is the mind that knows how to let go of expectations. It is the mind that can concentrate on the miracle of the here and now. Imagine how mindfulness could enable us to live our Unitarian Universalist principles to the fullest. Around the world, millions of Buddhists salute each other with their hands in an attitude of prayer and bowing their heads while saying Namaste. Remember the beautiful anthem, Namaste? Well, this means, loosely translated, I salute or honor the light or the divine in you. Wouldn't it be easier to affirm and promote our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of every person, if we were to salute each other in the manner just described, namaste? We could easily do our greetings mentally. Of course, we don't have to be that outward. And being mindful of the fact that indeed, in each of us resides the spark of divinity. By greeting mindfully, we will also be practicing our third principle since we will be affirming and promoting the acceptance of one another and the encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations. The eighth step of this beautiful path is right concentration. We remember Buddha's concentration under the Bodhi tree. Concentration is one of the main requisites. It's one is to seriously meditate and attain deliverance from distracting temptations along the path of enlightenment. So far, we have an idea of Buddha's basic teachings, yet the question remains. What kind of religion did Buddha found? In his book, The World Religions, from where I, where I have drawn many of the ideas for this sermon, of course, Houston Smith writes, six aspects of religion surface so regularly as to suggest that their seeds are in the human makeup. Those six aspects are authority, ritual, speculation, tradition, grace, as when one feels friendly, uh, one thing finds that the universe is friendly and we feel at home in it, and mystery. Says Smith, being finite, the human mind cannot begin to fathom the infinite it is drawn to. Having such great mind and heart, Buddha was aware of the pitfalls in, pitfalls in each of these aspects of religion and how, when applied the wrong way, they could cause all sorts of ills in society, just as he had observed happening in India. 
This is why the original Buddhist religion is devoid of external authority, of rituals, and of metaphysical speculations. This didn't prevent people, of course, after Buddha's died, to diversify the, the teachings, to adapt them to their own societies. And there are three main branches. There are many, many, but three main branches, the Theravada, the Mahayana, and the one practiced mainly in the Tibet. Uh, again, I would love to talk about them because they are so, so different and so uh, important. And um, here we have this altar, even Kuan Yin, which I love, is the goddess of compassion. But we, don't, we are not going to talk about that today. So that will be for another sermon or a workshop or something because there's so much that we can learn. Buddha's appeal was to the individual to pursue his or her own nirvana, the supreme blissful union with the mystery, and that to do it unimpeded either by external or internal distractions. He commanded his disciples, just like we sang just before the sermon, be ye lamps unto yourselves, betake yourselves to not external refuge, hold fast as a refuge to the truth, Work out your own salvation with diligence. There are those who speculate whether Buddhism is a religion since it does not profess a god, and those who say that because Buddhism is a godless religion, then a religion does not necessarily need a god. Smith suggests that we take a quick look at what we mean by god. Are we talking about a personal god or about the Godhead, the divine essence of all beings? What was Buddha referring to when he said, there is, O monks, an unborn, neither become, nor created, nor formed. Where there not, there will be no deliverance from the formed, the made, the compounded. Then the question arises, is nirvana the same as God? I found fascinating the work of Edward Gons, as cited by Smith, where he compiled from Buddhist texts a series of attributes that apply to both the Godhead and to nirvana. Gons found that nirvana has been described as permanent, stable, imperishable, immovable, ageless, deathless, unborn, and, and become power, bliss, happiness, the secure refuge, the shelter, and the place of unassailable safety, the real truth and the supreme reality, the good, the supreme goal, and the one and only consummation of our life, the eternal hidden and incomprehensible peace. It is easy to appreciate how these attributes are similar to those of the Godhead found in Hinduism and in Christianity. I, for one, believe that Nirvana and the Godhead could be taken as similar concepts in Buddhism, thus negating the idea that Buddhism is a religion without an ultimate reality and mystery. This probably does not sit well with the rationalist who prefer to see Buddhism as godless and as a philosophy rather than a religion. 
I like the following description of Buddhism given by Smith. He says, Buddhism is a voyage across life's river, a transport from the common sense shore of ignorance, grasping, and death, to the farther bank of wisdom and enlightenment. He adds, before the river was crossed, the two shores, human and divine, had to appear distinct from each other, different as life and death, as day and night. But once the crossing has been made, no dichotomy remains. Before crossing the river, it makes sense to discard as much baggage as possible, particularly if one is to cross the river alone. Following the Buddha's teachings of self-reliance and trust in one's ability to find the truth within ourselves. For some of us, much letting go and detachment has to take place. Detachment and letting go in normal times requires effort and sacrifice. In times of tragedy and loss or deep hurt, an immense amount of courage is required since it could be very difficult not to let pain, horror, despair, anger, and any other attendant feeling paralyze and destroy us. Voluntary surrender in the face of tragedy also demands an immense amount of trust. Trust that if we do whatever is in our power to improve a situation, to correct a wrong, to forgive those who cause us hurt, to love those who reject, our, reject us, life will continue growing in us. Not just any kind of life, a much better life, more vibrantly and consciously lived, more deeply enjoyed and appreciated. Surrendering, detaching, letting go, also require a good dose of wisdom to know when and what to let go of and when and what to keep. Those who surrender and let go of the bitterness and temptation of becoming victims are the true heroes and heroines of life. Judging by the experience of those who have been able to follow this path of surrendering and renunciation, the rewards are so gratifying that it seems worthwhile to try to follow their examples. I call this sermon Buddhism a sacred path because it pra its practice can lead to nirvana, the ultimate state of bliss and union with the divine. May all be blessed with the drive to cross the river of life and reach the shore where fear, pain, craving, and attachment cease to shackle our minds. May we all, through the engagement in a spiritual practice, be able to live lives of compassion, service, and love as we endeavor to build the beloved community here at First Parish and in our lives. Amen and blessed be.